0: As a way to quit smoking, back then my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa. So sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you are wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly 1 million dollars so far. Head to jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at jonji.com. That's j a n j i.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, My whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country, The truth lies west. Discover yours at travelwyoming.com. This is
1: Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans Brown. I'm here with producer Hannah McCarthy. Hi, Hannah.
2: Hi, Sam Evans Brown.
1: (laughs) And senior producer Taylor Quimby. Hi, Taylor. Hello, Sam Evans Brown. Now that we all know each other's last names, <laughs> let's all proceed. Why do geese make veins? Does a bumblebee sneeze? Can a person eat trees? Can a polar bear freeze? Is a kidney stone kind of like a
2: pearl in a clam? But I don't know. Ask Sam. Never gets old. Now I'm in the mood for it.
0: <laughs> Hi. I'm Aaron from San Diego, California. And I'm glad you guys said no question is too silly because I've been wondering this for a while, but everybody laughs at me when I ask it. When a caterpillar. Becomes a butterfly. All right. So caterpillars have a bunch of little legs, but butterflies only have six legs. I'm like, where do all the legs go? <laughs> anyway, I so, hope you guys can answer that for me. Thanks. Bye.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, God. <laughs> where do they all go? What? Where do they go? Yeah, but this was this was the subject of a wonderful radio lab.
2: But uh, caterpillar slash butterfly legs was the subject of a Not or were l- the subject. Of
1: <laughs> Not legs specifically, but caterpillar slash butterfly metamorphosis. Okay, all right. And how crazy it is. Yeah. Okay, so here's what happens. They they go into the chrysalis and they turn into a pupa. And they liquefy, like yeah. all these enzymes get released that sort of digest their body and oh. turn it into like the building blocks of a butterfly. And apparently that Radio Lab episode is kind of oversimplifying. It's not like the entire caterpillar liquefies and then a butterfly is formed whole cloth. I mean, parts of it turn into goo and there are some structures that are still there. There are some body parts that are kind of getting moved around. But when it's all done, there is a butterfly.
2: Does it have the same brain? Is it the same entity?
1: This is the Radiolab story. Oh, okay. That we are never going to do as well (laughs) as they did. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we could just play it four times fast
3: (laughs) and cue Radiolab. (laughs) Hey, I'm Jad I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radiolab, and today, today we are doing our black box. Yeah, (laughs)
1: the black box is uh, it's a thing.
2: I think the question that we maybe should answer is: Are the legs that the butterfly has? From the caterpillar, like mm. are those the same legs? Or do all the legs liquefy and do they grow brand new that's a, good, that's a
1: good one. I called up Gwen Pearson, who we have talked to in the past. She is my favorite Twitter insect person. And runs the, the sort of like bug zoo at Purdue University. Hello, Gwen Pearson. So what Gwen said is we've got the basic picture right. Parts of the caterpillar get digested, but other structures remain. Their circulatory system's still there. Their their respiratory system's still there. And the legs are also still there as well. So the legs
0: don't go anywhere.
1: The legs don't go anywhere. In fact... We are confused about what a leg is.
2: You're blowing my mind.
1: Ready? Here's Gwen.
2: Have you really looked at a caterpillar, man? (laughs) 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 So a caterpillar has two different kinds of legs. And the legs that are just behind their head are sort of their proper insect legs. And those are jointed legs and they're hard. Um, And those are the same legs that will later become their moth or butterfly legs. Mm, But behind that, they have all of these little blurpy, blobby legs. (laughs) Um, And so because they're such fat little pudge babies, um, they have all these rolls. And so those feet that they have, the extra feet, are actually just blobby extensions of their body. Um, And so it's like... If I could use my extra donut handles as an appendage. Um.
1: <laughs> so that is the answer. The legs don't go away. They, they sort of like reform as slightly different legs. But the, the, the back legs, which are called pro legs, those get reabsorbed and turned into butterfly tissues.
2: But they're not legs at all. They're, they're actually not. extensions of fatty tissue. Like w- when a baby is still super chubby, if they could like crawl using their fat, or yeah. If, something. They could, if
1: they could like manipulate their fat roll so that it could oh, move wow. back and forth, that's what that's what caterpillar legs are.
2: I never thought of a caterpillar as a toddler until this point, or like a a baby learning to crawl.
0: But yeah. That I kind
3: of do. Hi, Sam and everyone else. I have a question about animals and how gay they are. Um, I've heard about some animals being pretty gay, and sometimes they only mate to make baby animals. Otherwise, they hang out with other genders just for fun. I don't know. Um, Yeah, so basically, how queer are animals? Which ones are the gayest? I'd love to know. All right, thank you very much.
1: Goodbye. That's a great question.
3: Yeah,
1: and I'm sure someone will have more insights as, <laughs> as the, <laughs> the answer than us, because my my insight is basically the same as hers, which is like I've heard that some are pretty gay. Yeah. Can I just can I just add that I know that the segment is called Ask Sam, but everybody else, come on. Oh, no. come maybe. Come yeah, on. I know. Hey Sam. <laughs> I'm and, hurt. And chopped liver. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
3: Hi, I'm Karen Bondar. I am a biologist, author, and TV host.
1: Okay, so for this one, we talked to Karen Bondar, who looks at this specifically, animal sexuality. And the basic consensus is that, uh, well, here, I'll just let her say it.
3: In the animal kingdom, I frankly have yet to find an animal who isn't at least a little bit gay. They are all queer. Absolutely, and I would say that with a good deal of certainty and authority.
1: So the takeaway, I think, here is, th- is basically there's a huge amount of of just sort of like indiscriminate sexuality in the anim- animal kingdom, hmm. and the gender animals are, are fooling around with doesn't seem to really cross their mind all that much, and it's basically like they don't have hang-ups.
3: For the rest of the animal kingdom, sex is as normal as eating breakfast or... You know, doing any number of of relevant, normal living activities, and so it's just no biggie.
1: Um, and the last thing that I thought was kind of funny is that uh, it's it's actually less useful to think of uh, you know what is the gayest species, and and think more of just as we do with people that there are individual animals that that might be uh, more prone to to be homosexual versus. You know, versus like, oh, like, are bonobos the gayest? Mm. Tell me bonobos are the gayest. We
3: tend to think that all animals act kind of similar. You know, there's a a donkey over there. What do donkeys, what are donkeys like, you know? Well, guess what? All the donkeys have personalities, too. Well,
1: I really like that. Yeah, That's a really nice takeaway. You know, I watch a lot of nature shows with my son, and there's very much this sort of like, how does the snake behave? You know, and, and I don't know. You don't think of animals as individuals unless they're pets. Well, yeah. and so this was one of the really interesting things, is that, that there's a huge amount of bisexual behavior in mm-hmm. animals, animals who are, who are willing to hook up with whatever. There's very little exclusive homosexuality where there are animals that say, I, I will only hook up with animals of my same gender. Um, and in fact, the only animal that we know that is exclusively homosexual are sheep. Uh, 10% of male rams will reject females. Wow. Male rams. 10% of rams (laughs) (laughs) will reject females. Um, And that's like one of the only other species that-
2: The only one. That's so interesting. That we know know of. That we
1: know of. Exactly. So so what about, did she have anything to say or are we going to get into which is the gayest animal or are we deciding that that as a question maybe just doesn't quite make sense? Well, the one that's often cited and that she did touch on slightly are bonobos Mm -hmm. who are- the, the monkey that we are most similar to genetically. Um, and, and, but they're, the reason that they're often cited as the gayest is because they are so sexual generally mm-hmm. that a lot of their interactions are homosexual.
2: We get to see a lot of it.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, and they're just like constantly having sex. Right. Um, and, so, and so like when you're constantly having sex and you're sort of indiscriminate, a lot of that is going to be homosexual. Okay. One. Well, and, and, and to be, you know, like gay is a, is a sort of an identifier. It's, it's something that you would describe yourself as based off of you know how you feel and, and who you're attracted to but even as like humans are sort of starting to say like we need more ways of describing how we feel and what we're attracted to we understand now like i might be pansexual or demisexual or all these you know for, or bisexual um and when it comes to animals we're still like is it gay or not gay and animals are oh, like an don't put point. your labels on me yeah yeah <laughs> yeah Uh, So this next one, I I should say that we have been getting so many questions um, that we can't answer them all. So I'm sorry to those of of you out there who don't have your question answered. We've got one gentleman who has called so many times. uh, I feel like we really need to answer one of these questions.
3: Hey, Sam, this is Jerem from Dallas, Texas. Hey, Sam, this is Jerem from Dallas, Texas. Uh, <laughs> hey, Sam, this is Jerem. Hey, Sam, this is Jerem from Dallas, Texas, again.
1: <laughs> so he's asked, he's asked many good questions. Where's he from? Uh, from Dallas, Texas. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's asked a bunch of questions. This is the one we're going to answer today, I think.
3: So just uh, kind of the basis of uh, a living fossil means that the genetic makeup hasn't really changed a whole lot over a couple thousand years kind of like alligators and the such forgive me if I'm wrong but humans haven't really changed a whole lot over a couple thousand years so would we be considered living fossils or what are we so yeah thank you and bye is that the definition of living
1: fossil I mean certainly not thousand like he's he's off by a couple orders of magnitude I think but isn't the definition of living fossil something that exists in the fossil record but is also still alive today? Oh. Yeah. That's my understanding, although I don't, I don't know if there's like a, a specific time. You know, like when I think about living fossils, I think of millions of years. Yeah, thousands was not. That, <laughs> that's definitely not the definition. So that leads me to think, no, that we're not uh, living fossils.
2: Is there an exact definition of living fossil?
1: This this sounds like someone we should call and get answers
0: to both of those questions.
1: So we called Brian Sweetek, who is a writer with Scientific American, who has who has thought about this specific question. And,
0: and just so you know, um, in in terms of uh, name pronunciation, if that comes up, my last name is uh, pronounced Sweetek, and uh, I'm the author of a book yeah. called My Beloved Brontosaurus. Uh,
1: and one of the first things he said is, of course there isn't a real definition for living fossil, which is part of why this is a problem. So defining something that has no definition is like... Mm. So one of the things that Jerem said was he thought the definition was something that hadn't changed genetically in a really long time, which if you get genes into it, immediately gets you into trouble.
3: From a genetic standpoint,
0: there can't be anything as a living fossil because there's a change every time there's a new generation. Um, Yeah, even though anatomically... There might not be a lot of change genetically. There's just this riot of evolutionary change that's constantly going on. So Mm.
1: if we are talking about genes, living fossils don't exist ever at all. Mm -hmm. Even like the coelacanth and all these things that are like the classic living fossil are genetically different from the ones that existed millions of years ago. Yeah. But does that also mean that the things that we think of as living fossils, like sharks and alligators, it's not like they stopped evolving. They are evolving. It's just they look the same. Right. And since the problem is that we don't have a very good definition of what a living fossil is, I'd like to propose an Alternate definition that comes from a story that Brian told about a tree called the Metasequoia.
0: So, this is a tree that's known from the fossil record as a fossil record that goes back, if I remember correctly, about 50 million years or so. Um, and that's how it was first identified. That's how it was first named. It turned out to still be alive in forests in China. So, that is like literally a, a living fossil, something that we thought was long gone that we named from the fossil record. There it is, still growing in the modern world.
1: So that's my proposal for a new definition of living fossil—something we thought was extinct, and then we found it actually still alive.
2: But isn't that meta? What is the metasequoia? Metasequoia hasn't it changed genetically? Oh, for sure. Since okay, yeah. So it's We're still. Which let, let, let's get but rid of this whole. We... Okay, right. Yeah. Just that we thought that it was gone. Yeah, but it isn't.
1: And it's—I feel like that's a a more functional definition with like bright hard lines of what is and is not a living fossil. So, if for example, a crack opened up in the earth and like a Tyrannosaurus rex came out we'd be like oh there's a living fossil there's a living fossil (laughs) we thought that was extinct but I guess not and then we'd run away yeah yeah exactly okay okay um next one focus
3: hi it's Sherry calling from Dr. Metcalf's office just calling to remind you of your appointment with us on Monday at two o'clock we'll see you then thank you bye bye (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, burn That person I've... did not go to their doctor's appointment Slash that person who left that message Was not paying attention to the answer machine <laughs> message that <laughs> They left that after the outside in theme And me going You've called the Ask Sam hotline <laughs> <laughs> Man, autopilot oh. Okay Let's take a breather Let's come back to this after a second
2: Take a knee <laughs> Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My
3: first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet, the emptiness and the harshness, really, I found transformative.
2: Or a story told when safely back on dry land. You know,
1: things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to (laughs) eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't (laughs) eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's
2: how it works. (laughs) Join me, Laleh Arakopli. Every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts.
1: Welcome back to Outside In. Today we are asking listener questions from the Ask Sam hotline mailbox where they accumulate forever. Not to correct you, but we're not asking the questions. We're answering the questions. Yeah, we're, yeah. (laughs) Proceed.
3: (laughs) (laughs) My name is Catherine, and I was wondering the other day um, how much it costs, on average, to ride in the elevator instead of taking the stairs. Uh, I was in a building in Austin, Texas, but it was just a two-story building with a very, very slow, big elevator. And it struck me as kind of silly to take the elevator. And then I thought, you know, I wonder what it costs in terms of like installing the elevator, maintenance and upkeep on the elevator, and then just the energy to make it go up and down. Uh, thanks.
1: Bye. Before you guys get going on this, uh, this is actually a perfect opportunity for a segment that we've been thinking about. This is an idea from Cordelia Zars, uh, Outside In Contributor. It's a little something that we're going to call Sam Ruined It. <clears throat>
0: when you <clears throat> like to do a thing because you think
1: that it's a good, good thing. thing and you tell Sam and he says uh, That's a bad thing. People everywhere are going to do their thing but Sam ruined it. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I like that we're we're fully, you know, turning me into a cartoon character. Uh, I'm ready for it. I'm ready for it. Do you guys take the elevator every day? I tend to take it up
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and then take the stairs down.
2: Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I do a little bit of both. If I'm in a rush, I'll take the elevator, and I don't know if that actually makes sense.
1: It's actually, I'm not sure that this is the perfect thing for the Sam Ruined It segment. I thought here. for sure you were going to tell us <laughs> that elevators are, like, costly and put out tons of carbon. and. Well, are- okay. So, so what I know about elevators is that they're actually a very efficient way to move people um, through space. Because they're, like, it's, it's basically like a train, right? They're, like, a train car on some rails that goes up and down instead of side to side. Um, and, and not only that, they have this, this thing called a counterweight um, which is which is as the elevator goes up, there's a weight that's going down, right? And the counterweight is is um, depending on the elevator, uh, it weighs about as much as, as the thing when it's loaded to like 40% capacity. Mm-hmm. So you can think of it almost like a seesaw, yeah. right? Yeah. or a grandfather clock. Like, yeah. yeah And so and so like, if you're thinking about a seesaw, like it doesn't take a ton of effort to push like even if you're with a pretty big person on the other side, it doesn't take a ton of effort to push them up into the air. Um, and so and then when you're lowering them back down, when you're coming back down, that's no work because the weight is, is sort of like doing the work for you. Yeah. Well, also it's an accessibility question, right? So it's yeah. like you want to have the elevator there for people who can't take the stairs. Um, the question ends up being a sort of a judgment one, not unlike the <laughs> small you made when I, said, yeah. when I said that I take them up, which is that people who could walk, Tend to take the elevator. I will say that I've been, uh, I've gotten on the elevator with, you know, going up to the sixth floor, and when I see people getting off the, at the second floor, oh, like man. I tend to cock my head a little bit, like really, <laughs> one flight of stairs. Guys? I judge
2: heavily when people do that, <laughs> or when they just take it one flight down to the basement. That's even worse. You could roll down the stairs, <laughs> you trip <know>? and
1: fall, <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be fine. <laughs> I did Google this at one point and like the energy used by elevators in in large office buildings is actually less than the energy saved when they went from like regular to C F L light bulbs. Wow. Yeah. So it's very small amount of energy. Wow. In the grand scheme of things. That's insane. Yeah. Well, you officially haven't ruined elevators then.
0: Yeah.
1: Gotta ruin something else. Yeah, yeah. We need, yeah. Okay. For the purpose (laughs) of this segment, you still need to ruin something. So, Sam, what do you got? What? uh, Just on the spot, just like that? Yeah. How about artisanal light bulbs? What? That's a thing? Have You ever, like, gone to a restaurant and seen, like, the old timey looking (gasps) long. Oh, I love those. Yeah. Like
2: the Edison incandescent? So (gasps) stupid.
1: So stupid. Do you mean from an efficiency standpoint? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> They're like 10 times less efficient. And why? And why? <laughs> <laughs> because they look old. And people uh, are like, "Well, that's that looks old." Okay, just one more thing. Ruin one more thing. Uh
2: Something that people really love.
1: Hybrid cars? <gasps> what? No. That's an episode. You can't just ruin <laughs> hybrid cars real quick during an Ask Sam. They're not much better for the environment than regular cars.
2: No way. What about when I finally get my Tesla? Will I be a champion of
1: electric cars are okay. better than hybrid cars? Right. The problem the problem with a hybrid car is you've got two drivetrains in one and you've got this giant battery and you've got this giant gas engine. And so mm. and so like, you know, first of all you add layers of cost and and but just generally not that much more efficient. So do you mean like so a solar panel, for example, uh, it creates carbon in its manufacturing process, but eventually, you know, you can sort of make that back because it's because it's energy. And in the case of a hybrid car, there's just so much stuff in a hybrid car because you have to have the two drivetrains that it takes much longer to recoup that investment. Yes. And and not only that, they are not they're not so much more efficient than a regular car that they're they're like recouping it really quickly. Hmm. Right? So, so uh, you know, the Prius gets, like, 50 miles to the gallon if you're lucky. If you drive, like, a, many normal people, they get more like 40 miles to the gallon. You can find a small, just a regular car that gets 40 miles to the gallon.
2: Hmm. My Honda Civic gets around that. Yeah. Oh.
1: And so for all that, you know, expense and batteries and having a new drivetrain in there, you get, what, a couple miles per gallon.
2: Dang. All right. You did ruin it.
1: Ruined. Ruined. I believe we are now ready to go back into a normal Ask Sam. Okay. Uh, Question number whatever we're on.
0: Hi, my name is Kenneth from Hennecook, and uh, I've heard tale of some crazy people out there who ride their bikes to work in sub-zero temperatures. And I'd like to ask Sam specifically, what would lead someone to do such a foolish thing? Thanks.
1: Should I reveal that uh, I knew this question was coming? Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I knew that you were riding your bike in sub-zero temperatures <laughs> the other week.
2: Is this a friend of yours criticizing no. you?
1: <laughs> no, it's not. It's someone someone from Twitter. Ah, uh, okay. Legitimately though, I think he raises an important point that you are crazy. Uh, <laughs> no, that is wrong. <laughs> How cold was it when you were when you were riding um the other week during the, you know, bombogenesis? -18.
2: Would it have been worth it? If you ended up with a little bit of frostbite on your knuckles or something, if so, hey. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably not this is a, a fair loaded question. <laughs>
1: question, this is a loaded question. It's like if you had lost your entire face, <laughs> wouldn't you have reconsidered? Yes, I would have reconsidered. Okay, okay, so so tell us how you did it then, because because you seem to do it uh, with without much. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's fine. So so what's the strategy? Like, what do you need? What's the you just take all your clothes and put them on? And then you <laughs> ride <to> work. <laughs> no, but actually though, that's like literally all I do. You don't have I have two I have two pieces of specialized gear. Okay. I have uh, these things called bar mitts, which are a neoprene cover. okay? So so they' they go over your handlebars and you stick your hands inside them and then grab your brakes and your shifters and stuff inside the bar mitts. Mm-hmm. So I have those. and then when it gets really cold, I'll wear a glove inside those.
2: And that's a specialized thin glove.
1: Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Just regular gloves. Oh, regular gloves. I buy literally the cheapest gloves I can find. Okay. Real quick, have you considered that if you know a young Jewish cyclist coming of age that you can get them bar mitz for their bar mitzvah? That's a <gasps> oh, great pun. I've yeah. uh, never heard that joke before. <laughs> oh, wait. Is that a common cyclist joke? Aww. Every time someone sees the bar Aww. mitz, it's the first thing they say. I thought
2: that was really good. <laughs> Thank
1: you. <laughs> Hannah and I are clearly not in the cycling forums.
2: What do you do with your face?
1: So uh, for the face, if you heard of a buff, buffs, buffs. I mean, you can just wear a scarf. Doesn't have to be anything. A scarf or a balaclava. But um, but I use a buff, and I have a two buff system. But it's just like it's like a thin piece of stretchy fabric that you put on. It's like a neck gaiter. Um, and so you've seen people wearing them for sure. Yeah. Um, and buff is the brand name there, and they're not all actually buffs at this point. It's like Kleenex at this point. Mm. They, they call them buffs even though they're not. Um, so so I wear one, and I pull it. So I put it on my chin and then I pull it up so that it goes over the top of my head, so it covers my cheeks. And then I have a second one that I pull up over my like nose and mouth, so that it comes at a lower angle. Um, but my so my whole face is covered except for my eyes. And when you breathe into anything that's covering your face like that, your breath actually warms up your whole head and and uh, there there was actually this article that I was reading the other day that was talking about how There was some military experiment where they they gave people a balaclava, and then they gave people a hat, and then they asked them to rate how cold different parts of their body felt. And people with a balaclava actually said their fingers and toes felt warmer than people with a hat. Interesting. Hmm. And then then the other piece of specialized gear I have is I have shoe covers. So I put on warm socks, and then I cover my shoes up. And that keeps my hands warm, my feet warm, my face warm, and I usually get to work kind of sweaty. Wow. What would be the limit? I mean- Well, negative 18 is the coldest I've done so far. It doesn't seem to be the limit. I was still sweaty. Yeah. Wow. Um, So before we end the show, we've actually got uh, a really, we got a great comment in from a listener as well who listened to the last Ask Sam. And I don't know if you remember, this one was uh, Sam, you, Hannah, you were there, but also producer Jimmy Gutierrez. And at one point you started talking about uh, the dead man's float and bottling. Bottling and logging. Yeah, yeah, and whether or not it serves any purpose. So let me just play the clip.
2: In what, what situation would that help you? Right.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, scaring small children at the beach. Yeah. 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 Avoiding laundry. <laughs> Avoiding
2: laundry. <laughs> just lie face down on the floor and wait till Aubrey says something.
1: <laughs> so uh, we actually got a call from a listener about this one.
3: Hi there, Sam, Hannah, and Jimmy. This is Adrian from Montverna, Vernon, New Hampshire. I'm actually an officer in the Navy. I'm a surface warfare officer, and we call a dead man's float a prone float, but
2: we actually use it in our second-class swim call. So, a required swim call for all Navy personnel because a dead man's float or prone float is actually the best way to conserve energy. So, you uh, are face down. You keep your face in the water. You... Relax all your body and arch your back. And every couple seconds, 30 seconds or so, you roll over, take a breath, and roll back under. So we do it if we abandon ship. So that's why you use a dead man's salute. Thanks. Bye-bye. That is boggling. Isn't that cool? That's wild. Yeah. Why is that more energy efficient for the body than lying on your back.
1: She left a long message, so I clipped out a teeny portion. She actually said that one of the other reasons is that because if you are trying to do it on your back, and you're especially in the ocean, waves have a tendency to really lift you up and slap you in the face and can cause you to panic. And so I think part of it might be even to regulate your breathing a little bit. And I I also assume that for this to work as a way to survive, you have to be pretty well dressed if you're in the ocean. Because, yeah. like, you know— you're going to be freezing and go hypothermic pretty quickly if you're just lying there motionless in the water. (laughs) So you don't pull Leon DiCaprio. I'll just sink slowly to the bottom. I mean, that's always an option.
2: I think that would conserve the most energy, actually. (laughs)
1: Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, Hannah McCarthy, and Taylor Quimby with help from Ben Henry, Maureen McMurray, and Justine Paradise. If you liked these questions and would like to have even more information about the answers, please head to our website. The address is outsideinradio.org. If you didn't like these questions and think you've got a better one, you should give us a call. The number is 1-844-GO-OTTER. Alternatively, you can just pester us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're at Outside In Radio on all of those platforms. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Oh, and special thanks to Nick Capodice for the Sam Ruined It theme song. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.